Okay, we'd like to welcome you back to part three of our current event and weekly Bible study for January 3rd, 2010. And we're going to continue with the Hebrew Roots study where we left off. The fact that God chose uh, the Jewish nation had nothing to do with them being superior or better people, but because it was part of God's overall plan. Therefore, the Jewish people were privileged people. They spoke Hebrew. Therefore, the Old Testament books, God's words, were written in Hebrew. The New Testament, God's word, also God's word, obviously wasn't written in Hebrew. Maybe because this would give the Jewish people claim over the new faith, lording it over the Gentiles as the Jewish concision, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, did with the Galatians. That's a theory of his, and maybe true, maybe not, I don't know. The New Testament was written in a common language of the day in Quinine Greek, breaking down the partition which divided the two peoples, Jews and Gentile, giving them both equal status as born-again Bible-believing Christians. Just as the Lord chose the Gentile universal language for his word at the opening of the church age, Greek, will, so will he choose a Gentile universal language at the closing of the church age, which obviously right now is English. This is nothing to do with the race superiority, but has to do with God being sovereign, the sovereign God who calls the shots. He could not choose the present form of English as a base because it has lost its purity uh, in virtue of the moral absolutes, unlike it was at its purest form around 1611. Again, this has nothing to do with English being a superior, perfect language, but because God foreseen it would be a secular, uh, non-religious language that would transcend culture and political barriers in the age of globalism, bringing his word as a light to all nations. Uh, granted, there are different degrees of being ensnared by Hebrew roots, sacred name movement, just as there are with any spiritual deception. The Hebrew roots, at its best, if we can use this scenario, is luring believers back under the law, whereas at its worst, it is occultism sneaked in through Kabbalistic teachings. However, in order to deal with the falling away, we, we first must need to go beyond nipping it in the bud before it takes root and dealing with the false root. Uh, Luke 3, nine, And now the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, which bringeth forth not good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. So that's kind of like a spiritual self-check there. You know, are you bringing forth fruits, meat for repentance? Are you bringing forth good fruit? Are you, you know... Through the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, goodness, faith, temperance. Are you bringing forth evil fruit? You know, uh, which, you know, we could do a whole teaching on that. He says, we need to deal with it now as with all deceptions by ruthlessly dealing with every root that is not Christ so that there would only be one root left, which is Jesus Christ. The result, Christ being the right tree in our lives, bearing the right fruit at the end of the age. Going back under the law with its obsolete observances does not produce the right kind of fruit, but brings about striving in the flesh, sowing seeds of discord among the body of Christ with division and confusion. It also produces a complex belief religious system with a complicated false dual gospel. That's the fruit of this. You know? And this is something we're supposed to strive against. We're not just supposed to sit back and say, oh, we'll just let them, let them take all their adherence to hell. It's their problem. Uh, that's not really should be our attitude about that. Now, everybody has different callings. 
the, the Bible says, can the you know, finger say to the eye, depart of me, I have no need of you. I'm not telling all of you what you have to be doing and what you don't. You do what the Lord Jesus Christ convicts you to do, whatever your calling may be. But this, whenever we see false doctrine, it's something we, I believe we should fight if we're put in a position to do that. I mean, it's, you know, it's a matter of heaven and hell for these people. Hebrews 9, 9 through 12 says, which was a figure, this is in reference to the Old Covenant of the Old Testament, which was a figure for the time then present, in which we were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect. You couldn't be perfected through keeping the Old Testament Levitical law as a Jew, in other words. As pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings and cardinal ordinances imposed on them until the time of Reformation. But Christ, being come and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, in other words, by the blood sacrifices that you would have to continually offer as a offering for your sins, okay, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. It's simple. It's not complicated what we're talking about here. But all these other religious cults want to make it complicated. Nonetta just brought up something, you know, and what ultimately what's going to end up happening to millions of these people, and this is incredibly heart-wrenchingly unbelievably sad is where the Bible talks about when they come before Jesus Christ and he says, depart from me, ye that worketh iniquity, I never knew you. And then they're, they're going to say, well, haven't we done all these great mighty works in your name and, and cast out devils and done miracles? And his response is, depart from me, ye that worketh iniquity, I never knew you. What does I never knew you imply? It implies they were never ever saved. It didn't say, well, you were saved and then you lost it. He said, I never knew you. This is what these pseudo-religious cults, particularly the ones within Christianity, are doing. Because those that would say, we did great and mighty many works in your name, those aren't going to be the Buddhists or the Zoroastrians okay, or the Hindus who have totally different you know, pantheon of gods or whatever. We don't have a pantheon, but they do. They're not gonna, these are actually people that believe they were right with God, right with the whole Christianity thing. And I really see Hebrew roots people in this category uh, because they've gotten so far away from the Word of God for so many different reasons and is undermined from the very inception of beginning into this movement. That is really sad. That is beyond sad, because we're talking the lake of fire. We're talking hell and then the lake of fire. So it's that important, this study, what we're talking about today. Uh, I, I, I don't want any of them to go to hell. Lord God in heaven, I do not want one of them. And that's why I'm trying to do these types of studies, so that there's a, hopefully some that will see. Pray that, you know, the truth in these studies, and wherever God's truth is being preached worldwide, that that truth prosper, and that these people have eyes to see and hearts to receive and ears to hear. Pray for them, because they need that. 
I, I know when I was caught in bondage, um, you know, I am so thankful that I got out of that. And maybe there was people praying for me, and I praise the Lord for that. So anyway, um, let's go further here. Uh, Ephesians 2.15, Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, enmity meaning like war, having abolished in the flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments, contained in ordinances. So this is reference to uh, Jesus Christ. And then it goes on to say, For to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. So, he has abolished even the commandments contained in ordinances. And again, I've done several, several teachings on the Hebrew Roots Movement. We get way more into these scriptures. We're just giving you more of an overview. Colossians 2.14 Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us. Which is in reference to the law um, the law was our teacher pointing us to Christ. There's other references made to that. And then it says, which was contrary to us, meaning contrary to our nature. And it took, in, took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. This is what Jesus Christ did with his finished work on the cross. He nailed these handwriting of ordinances that were against us to the cross. This is a better covenant that the Bible talks about that Jesus Christ ushered in. The covenant of the New Testament. So, why point importance on the old, our past, our culture, our traditions, when there is so much at stake? A Jewish apostle called Paul saw his Jewish past as lost, as loss for Christ, as dung, that I may win Christ. That's how he viewed it. When the old covenant was brought to an end, it was completely and absolutely once and for all replaced by the new. The new wasn't simply a purification of the old, nor was it a rehash. When scripture says new, it means brand spanking new. Being in Christ means we have a new heart, a new start, a new life, a new hope, as all things become new. This world, with its various races, nations, beliefs, politics, and cultures, is not our home. We're only passing through. So that's the end of that one particular report. Now we're going to go further into this because there's just a lot to cover with this study. And again, this study could easily be ten parts. Easily. I'm trying to condense it as much as I can. This next article uh, is from www.seekgod.ca and it's what is his sacred name or his true name? This is from the author. During the past few years, I have heard all sorts of opinions about the name of God, how it should be pronounced, the importance of its use. I have heard many different names used by many different groups, most of whom believe they have the correct pronunciation or the true name. Some have even stated that the Spirit has revealed the true name to them. Oh boy, I love it when that one comes out. I love it when they say, the Holy Spirit told me last night, and then whatever they say is totally contradictory to the Bible. Wow, who do we believe? The Spirit that told you this, or the word of God. They've gotten so far away from God, they don't even care what the Bible says. That's what they're saying. They may not admit that, but isn't that what, aren't their actions betraying them? I can't tell you how many times I have encountered this in the Pentecostal church, and even in people that have emailed me things. The above list of names and titles in this article, which I didn't read, these are one of the many plethora of possible spellings of uh, uh, Yahweh 
anyway, I'm not going to read them all because I've, I've already kind of went over that. If you want to see them, there's no way I could read them. There's, there, there are little slight difference in pronunciations on these, um, these different ones. So the above list of names in the title of this article represents only a small sample of the plethora of names that I've seen used over the years to identify the Almighty. Many of the people believe that their um, choice is the only name that you should use. What does this do? Well, I know it's only, for instance, I'm going to pick one. I-H, I-A-H-E, no, I-A-H-U-E-H. Oh, that's what it sounds like. Okay, what have you just done? Well, I have my own little cult. I'm not going to call it a cult, but I'm better than you. Because, see, I know God's real name, and you don't, and I'm better than you. So nanny nanny boo boo. I'm better. I'm more holy. Come not thou near me. I am holier than thou. You're just you're just a whatever. You're a pagan. You you call Jesus Zeus. You don't even know that. Do you understand? Do you see the mindset that would be so easy to get into with this type of belief system? I'm better. Whoa, I guess you're the only one on planet that has this figured out. I guess you're the only one on the planet and you and your little cadre of followers that are going, really going to heaven. I see a lot of that in today's day and age. A lot of that. The Bible says, take heed lest you fall. And we're not supposed to be, think of ourselves more highly than we ought. We're supposed to consider the pit from whence we are dug, is what the Bible says. For we are all together as an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are as filthy rags, and we do all doth fade together as doth a leaf. Isaiah 64, uh, 6, I believe. Where These are the things we're supposed to hearken back to when we start thinking that we're really good and really proud. The Bible says, Pride goeth before a fall, and a haughty spirit before destruction. Well, that's what we're talking about here. What's the remedy? Humility. What's one of the things that really brings humility like no other thing? Fear of God. Well, I don't have any. Well, then pray for it. Pray for fear of God. Read all the connections with the fear of God and all the other blessings that is connected with the fear of God. Fear of God breeds humility. It is incredibly important. And it's one of the things that's hardly emphasized ever in the modern day church. Why? It's not popular. Well, maybe our tithes would go down. My 501c3 corporation called a church would suffer. Oh boy, sorry. So anyway, I've went down that rabbit trail many times, so let's not go down there again. So let's go further. Okay, so many people believe that their choice of the only name, of their name is the only name that should be used. Some groups believe that if you do not call on their specific name, you are addressing another god which they says breaks several commandments. Now, it's ironic because they're actually accusing us of the very thing they're guilty of. And we're going to prove that. I have also witnessed groups that use their choice of the name as a sort of Gnostic hammer to pummel the less enlightened on every available occasion. Oh, there's a lot of those ministers out there. They have their own little kind of pet niche doctrine. They kind of find out. You know, what you know and what you don't know. Maybe they find out little things about you. And then they just use that to browbeat you. And get you kicked into a corner. Why? Because then you become much easier to control. It's about control. It also gets the spotlight off themselves and onto others. 
I have spent the last four years or so researching and reviewing this topic, and the information below is a condensed summary of my own personal findings. The name Yahweh is the first rendering from uh, the Tetragrammaton, which is Y-H-W-H, that I will examine. Because it has become so popular as of late, the pronunciation of Yahweh started to become popular in the scholarly circles around the mid to late 1800s. Before that time, Jehovah and other versions of it were the pronunciations most commonly used. The pronunciation of Yahweh, spelled Y-A-H-W-E-H, was derived and based on a, quote, scholarly reconstruction from various early Greek writings. These Greek transliterations of the Hebrew um, Y-H-W-H were reportedly based on the original Samaritan pronunciations. After researching this claim, it appears that the scholars may have only casually examined the possibility the Samaritans like the traditional Jews, may have substituted another title when they came upon YHWH written in the scriptures, which was another word for God. In other words, it was like their substitution for the word of God. YHWH, which is referred to as the Tetragrammaton. And we're going to get more into that, so if you have questions, hopefully it'll be answered. Uh, let's see. While the Jews substituted Adonai when they came across the Tetragrammaton, when I say that word, just it's the... Capital Y-H-W-H. While reading the text, the Samaritans may have substituted the title Yafi, which means beautiful. This, and again, this gets into the whole, now we're getting into the whole ineffable name thing. Oh, oh, it's too, it's too holy to ever be uttered. Okay, well, I'm not saying God's name's not holy, but where does it say we can't say it in the Bible? Well, it's in the esoteric text, hidden from the broad masses. Oh, okay, great. So we have your private interpretation, and I'm going to base my whole religious, um, I'm going to base my whole belief system on what you're telling me, when the Bible doesn't even state it. Okay, so let's go further. This may be some of the early Greek writers first encountered. Okay, no, um, Samaritans may have substituted the title Yafi, which means beautiful. This may be where some of the early Greek writers first encountered the name. I-A-B-E, all in capital letters, which is the scholarly reconstruction, which is where the scholarly reconstruction of Yahweh originated. Now again, I'm not going to get too technical, but i got to do a little bit of this. The one modern Samaritan group has stated that the pronunciation of the divine name of Yahweh is inaccurate, based upon a Samaritan substitution of Yafi which was actually their attempt to avoid reading the divine name aloud. It should be also noted that nowhere in the Hebrew biblical text is the Tetragrammaton actually pointed to be read as Yahweh. There are some groups that are so fervently convinced that the true name is Yahweh that they have chosen to call their Messiah Yahweshua, or other variations, and I've given you some, but there's literally dozens and dozens of variations, or other variations using a truncated form of Yah as the prefix. The reasoning for this is rooted in the scripture where Jesus is quoted in John 5.43 as saying, I have come in the name of my Father. Due to the statement they believe he must have, then he, he Jesus, must have part of the Father's name included in his name. It's this, you know, linguistic uh, leap they're taking here leap of logic that they're taking. They're, they're assuming these things that are not even 
the case. Those who promote these concepts also promote many other names. And again, just think about the whole God is not the author of confusion verse. Why would he confuse us with hundreds of different versions of the Bible, with hundreds of different potential names for him? Which one whereby we must be saved? Which version is the one? Well, the Bible says forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in where? Heaven. Psalm 119. Okay, so forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. I believe that's Psalm 119, verse 89. Okay, uh, well, which version is it? Is it the uh, inclusive version that refers to Jesus as the one? Is it the uh, living translation, which actually has like cuss words in it? Is the NIV, which has over 64,000 words removed compared to the King James? Which one? Now, there's only one other Bible that came up through a totally different, unpolluted stream, and that's the King James. Then you have all the other hundreds of versions out there. So, it seems obvious, you know, when we're looking at this. If, even if you look at it from that standpoint. So, um, those who promote these concepts also promote many other name errors. Some have taught that when you say the English Amen instead of the Hebrew Amen, that you are actually calling on the Egyptian god Amun-Ra. See, this is how they plant the seeds of doubt in your head. Oh, you're actually calling on Zeus. Oh boy, we don't want to be in your shoes. You know, probably how they would say it. So they're saying now if we use Amen, we're actually calling the Egyptian god Amun-Ra. This is another example how these groups try to mix languages and meanings to prove their theology. It should be noted that in the Spanish language, the present subjective plural form of amor, which means love, is amen. These teachers and their groups have also tried to promote other errant concepts by stating that ge means earth or soil in Greek and sus means swine or pig in Latin, so that when you say Jesus, you are actually saying earth pig. They also teach that Jesus and Zeus are connected because of their endings of these two names sound similar phonetically, when in fact there is no connection. Those who promote these errors are usually quick to cite the Tetragrammaton has been conspir conspiratorially removed by the church and replaced with the term Lord almost 7,000 times in the majority of the English versions. It should also be noted that many of the Jewish Bibles also use the titles of Lord and God, while some also use Adonai, which means Lord, Hashem, which means the name, and the letters Y-H-W-H, which is left untranslated. Some have alleged this is a Jewish conspiracy to hide or eliminate the name as well. To the best of my knowledge, none of the Jewish translations spell out the name when the Tetragrammaton is found in the Hebrew text. They have this belief system that they can't spell it out say it, do nothing. Well, if we're supposed to call upon the name of the Lord in times of trouble, if we're supposed to call upon the name of the Lord, there's another name given among heaven, given among men, whereby we must be saved. If we can't say it, how do we get saved? How is it possible? If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. That's what the Bible says in Romans. So you see how this can be a matter of heaven and hell? You know, I'm not exaggerating. It really can be. 
Those who promote the conspiratorial concept might be interested to know that there's actually a translation code that was followed by the King James translators, as well as other modern translators, uh, so that English readers can actually understand how the Hebrew is, the, is relative to the English translation. It follows as, and this is the Hebrew words, Elohim is rendered as God. El is rendered as God. Elah is rendered as God. Eloah is rendered as God. Adonai is rendered as Lord. Adonai, with the Tetragrammaton, is rendered as Lord God. The Tetragrammaton by itself is rendered as Lord. And Tetragrammaton Elohim is rendered as Lord God. Eli, Asher, Eli is rendered as I am who I am. Okay, so these are just some things that they were going over. Now, the, the article that I was quoting from gets super, super unbelievably technical. And again, I'm going to include all the verbiage to this gigantic PDF file online that you can go, if you're not convinced, go and explore it further. But I, for the sake of simplicity and keeping this teaching relatively, you know, trying to keep it manageable, we're going to skip ahead here. Uh, this article, um, it's just another article we're, we're segueing into. Uh, Proverbs 18.13 says, He that answereth a matter before he heareth it, it is a folly and a shame unto him. Well, most people, when it comes to this subject, or many others, they've already answered the matter. Now, I, I've looked at both sides of this. I, was, I never really got caught up in the sacred name movement, but it was part of what you know, I was caught up in for a while as well. People that are in it, you know, you just most of the time you just can't tell them nothing. Second Corinthians two eleven says, "Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices." What's what we're talking about today? The devices of Satan, pretty much every week. Acts four seventeen through nineteen, but that it spread no further among the people. Let us straighten. And who was this? Who was us? Quoting. It was the Jewish Sadducees. If you go to Acts 4, they are identified as the Sadducees. The, you know, religious Jewish false sect. One of the false sects of the Jews. But let it spread no further among the people. Let us, the Jewish Sadducees, straightly threaten them, who were them, the Bible believers, Jesus Christ, that, well, the believers in Jesus Christ, because the full New Testament obviously hadn't even been written yet. Let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. They were really concerned about nobody using the name of Jesus Christ. Why? Because the devils and demons that were controlling them knew the power in that name. And then it goes on to say, And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. Isn't that weird? Like they were so concerned that they do nothing in the name of Jesus. And here we have the Hebrew Roots Movement of today, which are essentially doing the same thing. Undermining the name of Jesus, throwing question on it, having to get their Hebrew and or Greek or whatever equivalents to really find the true meaning. Isn't that weird? Hmm. No coincidence there, I'm sure. No, no parallels. And then it says, but... Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. 
They were hearkening unto God by preaching and teaching in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was that big of a deal because it's what salvation hinges upon. Going further, Columbine High School and numerous other murders and resulting controversies have brought to the forefront the reality of death. While many debate that guns are the cause for the loss of life, those that understand the times know that the spiritual barrenness is the real problem. While ires were raised at various memorial services concerning the preaching of Jesus Christ, many found the very mention of the name Jesus Christ deplorable. New Agers, Jewish rabbis, and not surprisingly, liberal Lutherans, many other so-called Christian groups, have entered into the rising flow of protest that a more universal-sounding purveyance of, quote, God is needed on a community or on a national, international level. There's no other name that offends like Jesus Christ. None other. Many Christians could ask why in the name of tolerance and acceptance of others and with the formation of the universal religion that is coming, it is the precious name of Jesus Christ that is deemed offensive and necessarily therefore needs to be eliminated. However, we know biblically that we are not destined to be promoted or upheld by non-believers. If we consider the question of tolerance in light of Christians in the Hebrew Roots controversy, we find that many proponents in these groups wish to replace the name of Jesus Christ and thus eliminate it. If we accept their proposed teachings would change the name of our Savior and embracing another name becomes the rejection... Okay, so let me read that again. If we accept their proposed teaching, the Hebrew Roots Movement adherents... Would changing the name of our Savior and embracing another name become the rejection of Jesus Christ and his salvation? There is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved? Well, what if it's a false name? Would it become the rejection of Jesus Christ and his salvation? You know, this isn't something I really want to mess around with. I don't know about you. Are you willing to risk your eternal salvation? on this sacred name issue. Now they'll accuse me of the... They'll, they'll say, well, you're guilty of the very thing you're accusing me of. Well, you know, you listen to this report and you, you judge who's on the side of righteousness regarding this issue. Then he goes on to say, what end does it benefit to change his name? It is imperative that we understand the significance of the sacred name issue, for Scripture tells us in John 14, 6, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Acts 4, 12. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name given among men whereby we must be saved. Unbelievably, some claiming to be Christians, evangelicals, charismatics, and Hebrew roots, say the scriptures are filled with errors and that only now have come to light because of the scholarship of various enlightened leaders. See, now they're all straightening us out, and you know, the fruit is so evident, too. We got the mega churches, we got the televangelists, we've got the lukewarm, we've got the frozen chosen, filling the pews every week. Little bro cream religion, a little dabble, do you, baby? Just send in your tithes, and we'll send you the magic uh, shillelagh prayer cloth, and all your dreams will come true. Send your money now. I'm not saying all religion, all ministries are corrupt. I'm saying, though, that, you know, the vast majority are. The vast majority should be coming against this. And they're, the stuff we get into on a weekly basis. I think to a certain extent they should be coming against it. And I know they're not all called to be watchmen, but they're called to protect their flock. 
from heresy and apostasy as a pastor, as a shepherd, if he has true love for the sheep, he's going to warn the sheep when he sees the wolf approaching, isn't he? Well, it, being a pastor, in part, is being a watchman. It's not the only function, but it's part. And I'm not saying they're all doing it, but a lot of them are. And, you know, this stuff is really uh, a cancer that is permeating through um, many factions of Christianity. Going further, the Hebrew Roots organizations have used the uninspired Westcott and Hort Greek text as a pretext for casting doubt upon the inspiration of the Greek New Testament. They have, and this is the revised version of 1881, I'm, I'm primarily in reference to, which was the foundation for the most of the, the vast majority of the modern day versions that have spawned from it. They have then proceeded upon this false premise to construct their Hebrew New Testament from a purported original Hebrew. The Hebrew New Testament. Okay. See, they can do whatever they want with that thing. They've reconstructed it. Well, that means they have license to do kind of whatever they want. This is, I believe, the Jerusalem Bible. One of them. One merely has to compare the verses from the authorized King James Version, which was based on the received Greek text, with the new corrupt versions to understand that the intent of their message is to remove the name of Jesus Christ, the need for redemption through the blood, and many other basic Christian doctrines. And it's the same thing the serpent did in the Garden of Eden, questioning God's word. The Greek texts were and are translated into other languages so that the gospel is published in all nations. It is absurd to think that God would be incapable of inspiring the translation of his word into other languages. It is also unthinkable that he would be unable to protect the needed messages in those languages. For English-speaking Christians, the translation found in the authorized King James Version is more than satisfactory. In fact, to suggest that it holds errors which must be corrected, would cast doubt upon all verses, including 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. I mean, isn't that what they're doing? Aren't they just totally, well, let's throw that verse out. Because we believe we're the ones that were inspired by God and all these other translators were uninspired. We know better. Whew. Wow. That's really bold. Uh, I mean, there's the there's the warning at the end of the book of Revelation. It says, Any man that taketh the words out of the book of this prophecy, I will take out his part in the book of life. And any man that adds unto the book of the words of this prophecy, I will add unto him the plagues in this book. Wow. I mean, that's not something I really want to be messing around with. 2 Peter 1, 20-21 Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. We've already read that one. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but by holy men of God spake, as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Mark thirteen ten, And the gospel must first be published among all nations. Okay, so continuing here. Uh, because Hebrew had no vowels. God's name was written as YHVH. This was also called the Tetragrammaton in Greek. The Kabbalists taught that this name was too sacred to be spoken. Now, where have we heard that before? Okay. The Kabbalists taught this. And the Kabbalists is really uh, 
one of the highest occult religious systems on the planet. And a lot of their high-level beliefs have permeated into other cults as well. So the Kabbalists actually taught that the name was too uh, sacred to be spoken, thereby depriving the Jews of the name of the Lord. Many believe that the Tetragrammaton is actually composed of 42 letters, while others claim it's 72, or other numbers. Again, well, who do you believe? The Tetragrammaton, or the Shechem Hamphorash, refers to what the Kabbalists and many other Orthodox Jews call the ineffable name, meaning the name that should not be uttered. You can't utter it. The four-letter name of God in Hebrew is yad he vah or in English capitals, Y-H-V-H, although some occult sources say it's I-H-V-H. According to various writings, the true ancient pronunciation is now unknown, since it has been believed that the name was too sacred to be written or pronounced by the profane. In reading the sacred writings, the term Adonai was substituted for that reason. That teaching is also why the Hebrew roots and the Messianic adherents write God as G-G. Okay, so before we go any further, just like if we go into the uh, Hebrew in the uh, Old Testament, which is what we're really talking about here, uh, we've got the word God, okay, just Genesis, you know, 1-1, one, one, uh, where, where it talks about God. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, okay, in that particular word. Okay, so if we looked at what that word is derived from in the Hebrew, it's Elohim, and we have um, that translated as God, uppercase G, 2,346 times in the Old Testament. Okay, and a handful of other trans ways it was translated also in the Old Testament. But the vast majority is God, uppercase G. Okay, so we don't have this whole uh, tetragrammaton business actually in there. It's actually translated from the word Elohim. So, let's go further. In her Theosophical Glossary, Madam... H.P. Blavatsky, the starter of the Theosophical Society, which we've mentioned many times, provided the esoteric meaning of the alternate version of the Tetragrammaton, which was I-H-V-H. Um, according to the Seraphat of the Kabbalah in the part of her secret doctrine. Okay, so I guess this is... Let's see. The whole concept of the name of God being unknown or inutterable, which is contrary to Scripture, is promoted by the Hebrew roots and the me many Messianic proponents through their use of the terms G-D and the Tetragrammaton YHVH, which many say as Yahweh. Uh, according to the Dictionary of Canadian English, the term ineffable means not to be expressed in words, too great to be described in words, that they must not be spoken. Okay, now remember, we're kind of tying this all together with high-level Kabbalah, the occult, Madam H.P. Blavatsky. Um, <clears throat> this is all interlinked. It becomes a contradiction of terms to write D or G-D and then state that the ineffable name should be said as Yahweh. I mean, hey, if it's ineffable, how could you ever even utter it? However, and remember, what we derive the term from God from primarily in the Bible is Elohim, the Hebrew, okay? Where does this Yahweh come in? 
because they say it's it's the it's the acceptable version of the tetragrammaton to utter it that way. Who says? Where does God say it? However, we find in the Theosophical Glossary the esoteric or hidden reason for describing the name of God as ineffable, namely that the Kabbalists consider it to be no name and God to be androgynous, meaning both male and female sex organs as befamant, as I talked about earlier. So the Kabbalists consider this ineffable name to be the no, the no name in this androgynous God, which has to do with the whole thing that I mentioned before about the Mormon belief at the very, very higher levels where you have God the Mother and God the Father and they're probably going to say they're one. Now, ineffable name with the Jews uh, let's see here. This is a quote, I believe, from a Kabbalist. Ineffable name with the Jews is the substitute for the mystery name of their tribal deity Eya which means I am or Jehovah. As this is what they're saying. I'm not saying I agree with it. The third commandment prohibiting the use of the latter name in vain, the Hebrews substituted that for Adonai or the Lord. The truth is that the name they bring forward is, quote, ineffable, is not in so, is not in the least so. It is unpronounceable, or rather the name not to be pronounced. If anything, and this for symbolical reasons, to begin with, the ineffable name of the true occultist is no name at all, least of all that of Jehovah. So the, the Kabbalists say this, is, this, this ineffable name that you think means God or Jehovah, it does it, it's, that's the least of what it actually is to the occultist. And then he goes on to say the latter implies even in its Kabbalistical esoteric meaning, an androgynous nature, male and female, together as one, as in Baphomet or the goat of Mendez. The tetragrammaton, YHVH, uh, or one of a male and a female nature. It is simply Adam and Eve, or man and woman, blended into one. That's what the occultists know this to be. And is now written and pronounced is itself as a substitute. Now, some of you out there may say, I don't even know what this, what are you talking about? I've never encountered this. Well, you're not in my shoes. And I mean, I got an email the other day from a lady. It was, it was ironic because she says, oh, you and Sherry Shriner are right on the same page. And I emailed her back. I said, and she was really thankful for my teachings. I said, really thank you for the compliments and everything. But with all due respect, Sherry Shriner is one of the main, main people that I warn against. This woman is preaching such a false, ungodly, devil, doctrines of devil, gospel, I wouldn't even know where to begin. I mean, anything that this woman is espousing, I have, there's so many, on so many levels, the woman's a devil, okay? She calls Paul the usurper. She, she sells this stuff on her site called Oregon, which is what Benjamin Krem highly advocates, which is the technology from Wilhelm Reich, which is what Oregon stands for, is orgasmic energy. It's energy that supposedly these little devices you make can harness from other people around the world from the energy they release upon orgasm. I'm just going to say it. Because I've had people email me about this. Well, what about this Oregon stuff? It's supposedly really good against aliens. And it's like the demon buster. And it's really good against UFOs. 
Yeah, that's that's good if you want to attract it. If you want to bring devils onto your property and stuff like that, it's good for that. You look at where Oregon was derived from. It's from Wilhelm Reich, who was a total pervert scientist that was into this garbage. This is what Sherry Schreiner promotes. Okay? The woman does not have a humble bone in her body. Just listening to her voice, I can't even hardly stand to listen to her for more than five minutes. It's so grating and so proud and so haughty. I've even read some of her uh, excerpts from her books where I, I know this because I've read it with my own eyes. Essentially, the, the message she sends to her readers and her listeners is that I'm really the only one with, uh, on the world that's truly right with God and really has any kind of backbone. And therefore, I'm really special. She has She's into the whole... Hebrew Bible code thing and supposedly cross-references her names and finds all these fabulous things about herself and the Bible codes. Stay away from that woman like the plague. There's certain truth that you can glean up there, but unless you're a very mature Christian, stay away from her. Anyway, uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not in unity with her in any way, shape, or form. She, is, she does teach on Maitreya and the Ascended Masters. You know, and these types of things, but you know, her her remedy for that is is just ridiculous, particularly being orgone. Anyway, uh, and again, I, I say that because it's come up a lot with people emailing me. I've got a whole file on her that exposes her word file. You can email me; I'll send it to you. Scottish Rite Grand Secretary Albert Mackey says in the eighteen 74 Encyclopedia of Freemasonry that Bell or Baal sometimes he's referred to as Baal Bell is the contracted form of Baal which was worshipped by the Babylonians as their chief deity. Baal is also the false god which the Old Testament Jewish prophets warned the people against. Mackey continues that Bell has with Jah and On been introduced into the Royal Arch Masonic system as a representative of the Tetragrammaton. This is Jabalon. Remember I said that false, crazy-looking, B-rated-looking, weird spider-head, human-head thing that the Freemasons worship at the highest level? Jabalon. Uh, but they are saying that that is actually representative of the Tetragrammaton, and that since 1871, his three-part name of, this three-part name of who they refer to as God, is Jabalon, has officially permitted to be retained as merely, as merely explanatory of God within the Freemasons, the Freemasonic religion. Jah stands for the Hebrew God, Jah or Jehovah, while On explains the name of the Egyptian city that has come to signify the Egyptian sun god, whereas the other person says it's symbolic of Osiris. You know, who knows? Uh, and then Jabalon... Uh, Jabalon, or some transliterated variation, became a Masonic black magic word in substitution for God. So, I mean, it's, this is pretty, uh, you know, this is stuff you really don't want to be aligning yourself with or messing around with. A disturbing account from an ex psychic, this is very interesting, who is now a faithful Christian reveals how very important are these issues. Recounting an incident in which this person was asked to do a reading for friends, she stated that although she expected to say the name Jehovah, 
Now this is uh, this is from a Jehovah Witness, uh, or she states that although she expected to say the name Jehovah, what came forth was the name Yahweh. She shared her experience with that chanting of her name Yahweh, and which was totally out of her control. This is a quote from that report. The wife had grown up a Jehovah Witness, which I knew. Now, this is the lady, the psychic, that was giving this account. She knew the lady she was doing the reading for was a Jehovah Witness, so she expected the name that she was going to be uttering was Jehovah. Okay. She says, I remember I was trying to do a reading for her while we were sitting on the floor. I was very upset. I began to cry and speak Yahweh over and over and not Jehovah. It upset everyone. I wasn't able to stop for a few minutes. I had never done anything like that before or after. Well, she was being demon-possessed. She was literally being possessed with like a, you know, it's what happens when you channel a devil. You become possessed by that devil. I think that if it was to impress the wife with the name of her God, it would have been Jehovah. So this highly offended these Jehovah Witnesses. It makes so no sense to this writer that demons would chant what many are referring to as being the name of Almighty God, Yahweh, which is their corrupted, perverted derivative of the Tetragrammaton, which is YWVH, depending on who you ask, because there's literally tons of variations on that as well, we'll get into. Um... I mean, why would demons chant the name Yahweh over and over again? Why would they do that? We must question what is taking place with these various groups who do not belong to Jesus Christ and promote the use of the name Yahweh. When God said, quote, I am the Lord, and I appeared unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob by the name of God Almighty, but my name, Jehovah, was not known to them, it is clear this was new information given to Moses which was to be remembered, and God did not say his name was ineffable. He didn't say, you can't ever speak it. Again, we have to look to the Bible. Where does the Bible say, not to speak it? I don't see it. I don't see biblical precedence. Oh, it's because the rabbis have the true knowledge. Or all these other extra-biblical, blasphemous books that hate Jesus Christ. Like the Tal Babylonian Talmud being the chief. Psalm 29.2 Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Worship the Lord in his beauty. And we're supposed to give unto the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in beauty of holiness. So, if you study this subject further, you will find, and this is where it gets really interesting here, I think. If you study the subject further, you will find that those deeply involved in the occult and the Kabbalah place a great deal of importance on this subject of this Tetragrammaton. See below for proof. Now, I'm going to post all this. You're going to have all this information at your disposal. I have been compiling this information that I am dealing with in this study for literally years. Years. It's taken me to gather all this, and that's why there's so much of it. I identified this early on as a major gigantic problem. It's just such a daunting study to do because there's so many facets to it. The four-letter, this is from a occult site. Okay. Okay, I got this directly from occult sources. Here's what they say. The four-letter Tetragrammaton, Greek four letters, is supposedly the true name of God of the Hebrew Scriptures. The Tetragrammaton 
is central to the doctrines of both the Jewish and esoteric Kabbalistic traditions. Now we know that the Kabbalism is absolutely straight from the pit of hell. And if it's so good and if it's so wonderful, why is it so important to these high-level Kabbalists? Um, the Tetragrammaton is where it is equivalent to the four Kabbalistic worlds of creation, the four elements, the four archangels, the four cardinal directions. Christian Kabbalists, as if there could be such a thing, add the letter Shin, rendering Y-H-S-H-H, or Yeshua, or Yeheshua. Um, uh, they, they add this letter Shin to this Tetragrammaton as proof of the divine origin of Christ. So this is just taking like, well, let's just take literary, light, literary license to this and just, just add things into words and take things away and it just has to be this way. You don't want to mess with the word of God. Hopefully I've made that clear. So, Kab Kabbalistic doctrine assigns four states of the manifestation of creation the four letters, the four weapons of ritual magic symbolize the essence of the letters of the Tetragrammaton. These form the basis of the four suits of the tarot cards. <laughs> okay, so this is what occultists commonly know to be true. Just like the occultists know that Xmas has everything to do with the pagan holiday of Saturnalia that's just been repackaged through the Roman Catholic Church to you know, placate Christians and pagans both. They know this. I gave you the quotes from the, from the email that I put out on, on Xmas. Qu quotes right from witchcraft books where <laughs> they're flat out tell you. It's not even a subject of debate, really. It's, it's, well, we just need to keep the Christ in Christmas. Well, he was never there. Or at least if you're referring to Jesus Christ. Now, if you're referring to Tammuz, the sun god, that Christ, well, you're right. The rebirth of the sun god? You know, Yule, December 25th? No, you're perfectly right. So anyway, uh, so the Tetragrammaton and the Kabbalah is so important in this ritual magic. And the, the letters of the Tetragrammaton also form the basis for the four suits of the tarot cards. The common knowledge to these high-level occultists. Uh, I'm going to go ahead... I think I'm going to run out of time here. Yeah, yeah I'm going to go ahead and go to part four here because I'm pretty sure I'm going to run out of time. God bless you.